Coming up, William Friedkin talks naked nuns, and Christopher Nolan talks about his epic new film, Dunkirk. X means excessive, really. This is a vast story that has to be told with an American budget, but it's a British story. Naked nuns, it was hard to make that a part of the story. I find filmmaking really difficult. You know, I mean, yes, it's not coal mining, okay, but I, but I find it tough. I find it physically tough. It's hard on your family life. It's hard on everything. It's, it's all consuming. Hey, folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. There is so much to talk about this week, so come on in, pull up a seat at the bar, pour yourself in a groni, and sit back and uh, relax. Take a load off. It's hot outside. It's nice and cool. The aircon is cranked up high in here. And uh, we've got some cool stuff to talk about. So where to start? Saw Elvis Costello earlier this week. I don't have a lot to say about this, only because uh, I've written a book about his first album, My Aim is True. And if you want to know how I feel about Elvis Costello, read that first chapter. Read that first chapter and see how... Putting on that record, the act of physically putting it on the turntable, putting the needle on the record, flipping it over, listening to side one, side two, side one again, side two again, probably then some individual songs, then the whole thing over again, changed my life. It was that moment, like I'm sure it was for my father, maybe, when he first heard Frank Sinatra or Bing Crosby music that kind of defined his era, or my brother when he heard Jimi Hendrix. For me, it was the music that made me understand that I never had to listen to Ario Speedwagon or Air Supply or anything like that ever again. So that was 40 years ago. The other night I go see Elvis Costello, the Imperial Bedroom Tour. He's got Pete Thomas on drums, Steve Naive is playing keyboards, there's backup singers, it's a, it's a great show. Interesting though, at a phase in his career when Elvis could easily have just played hits, just played all of My Aim is True, played the first three albums all the way through, people would have left and said, man, that was an amazing show, that would have tapped their toes, that would have sung along to every song. But instead, he chose to play the bulk of Imperial Bedroom, although vastly different arrangements that are on the album. He chose to do songs that he had never played in public before. He chose to do things that looked forward rather than backwards. And so from the time I was 14 to now, 40 years later, I can look at Elvis Costello and see an artist who still inspires me, who still, to this day, is looking at the next thing rather than the stuff he's already done. Inspiring show, an amazing show. If you have a chance to see it, go see it. I don't have an interview with Elvis Costello here, um, but maybe someday we will. I do want to get to a couple of things. A little bit later on, Christopher Nolan will be here to talk about his epic film, Dunkirk. It's astounding. This is a movie that is best seen as large and as loud as you possibly can. We'll get to that in a few minutes. First up, I missed Ken Russell's birthday. Ken Russell died six years ago. He was 84, and he passed away while I was finishing a book about him, uh, about a movie specifically that he directed called The Devils. The Devils is uh, the story 
the true to life story of demonic possession or was it mass hysteria or was it some kind of weird reaction from this wheat that these nuns in the 1630s in France were eating that had gotten wet and grew a mold that was somewhat akin to LSD, whatever it was. It caused some very strange things to happen in a movie that I think is a masterpiece, but it's one that has been chopped up and butchered over the years. Joe Dante told me that every time that you saw that movie in its original 1971 release, and every time for the next few years, you'd have a look at it, and it would be slightly different. Another local censor board would have come by and chopped out a scene or, or you know, carved out put their fingerprints on it somewhere and it's because it's an outrageous movie that features naked nuns it features uh, a scene called the rape of christ uh, but ken russell was a deeply religious man he was a, a, a catholic a convert to catholicism and this was his way of i guess having a look at his religion and his his belief structure and making comments on it it's a fascinating movie, if you can see it. If you can see it in its uncut splendor, do so. Anyway, so I come to that because I missed Ken Russell's birthday. It was July 3rd. Happy birthday, Uncle Ken. Uh, to celebrate, a little bit late, the belated birthday celebrations begin with William Friedkin. Now, William Friedkin directed a movie, of course, called The Exorcist. Loads of other stuff, too. The French Connection, all that stuff. But The Exorcist is the movie... Uh, that came out just after the devils had been crucified everywhere. And it's interesting because a lot of the themes that appear in The Exorcist are also in The Devils. Now, it's a different time frame. Uh, the Devils takes place in 1632. Uh, the Exorcist takes place in the 1970s, so, you know, the time frame is a little different. What makes all the difference, though, I think, well, no naked nuns in The Exorcist, but it also ends on, a, on an upbeat note. At the end of The Exorcist, and I guess it's a spoiler alert, good triumphs over evil. That's not the case in The Devils, and I think in a lot of ways that's the thing that really differentiates the two movies and really kind of is the statement that audiences made with their feet uh, by stamping them, by walking out of the devil, by any number of, of reactions that they might have had to it because it didn't give them what they expected. Anyway, so I had the chance to speak with William Friedkin and I asked him what he thought of The Devils, which came out just, you know, a, a month before, a, a year and a little bit before The Exorcist. And of course he knew the film because I think this guy has seen every movie ever made and certainly, you know, every movie of a certain vintage ever made. So The Devils fit perfectly into that category. Here's William Friedkin on The Devils. Why do you think that that movie was torn to pieces to shreds, literally, and then two years later, when The Exorcist came out, there was virtually no cuts made to it, and yet the, the topic's not that different. It's probably the way they were handled. Yeah. I mean, and the story. The, the Exorcist, in spite of its notoriety, was, was perceived to be a realistic presentation of real people in a supernatural uh, background, but uh, it was also 
uh, a popular novel before it was a film, and people came to it knowing what to expect. The other thing is, the main difference, the answer to your question, is the ratings board had changed and become more liberal from the time of the devils to the time of the exorcist. I mean, I, uh, you, I love Ken Russell's early work. Mm -hmm. I thought some of his later work, like the devils, was over the top and excessive. And if the ratings board perceives that that's the case, they come down very hard. X means excessive, really. Uh, so a movie may be great. I don't know your perception of the devils. You're writing a book about it. Uh, but uh, if it appears to be uh, excessive, um, they'll come down hard on it. If it appears to be part of the story, you know, they're, they're more tolerant. I mean, naked nuns, yeah. it's hard to make that a part of the story, yeah. although you did have the 17th century Devils of Loudoun, as a, right. you know, uh, but that was all supposedly a hoax. I don't know. Yeah. They say it was something to do with the wheat. The wheat mm -hmm. crop had been gone bad, and, and it had mm -hmm. fermented and literally formed like a crude form of LSD. is one of the theories. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Another could be mass hallucination. Thanks to William Friedkin for taking a couple of minutes to talk about one of the most outrageous and masterful films I've ever seen. It's called The Devils. If you want to learn more, check out my book. Here's its shameless plug time. The book is called Raising Hell, Ken Russell, and the Unmaking of the Devils. It's available wherever fine and not-so-fine books are sold, so you can check it out there, online, everywhere. You can even get an audiobook, although it's not my dulcet tones narrating it. Next up, we have Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, of course, we know from Memento, we know him from Interstellar, Inception, the Dark Knight movies, really, the prestige, I mean, it goes on. In Dunkirk, he's made a film that absolutely astounded me. This is a movie that doesn't rely on dialogue to get its point across. It is a movie that is pure cinema. It is show me, don't tell me. It's the story of the little ships of Dunkirk, the, the evacuation that happened in May and June of 1940. During the Second World War, the Germans had pinned the Canadians, the British, and the Belgians sort of against the sea, the English Channel, between Dunkirk and England. It's only about 26 miles across. There were 400,000 men on the French beach. They were trying to evacuate them. There was no way they were going to win this battle. Trouble is, the ships kept getting blown up. They couldn't get there. So, in an unprecedented show of community, of strength, all these little boats, the little ships of Dunkirk, pleasure cruises, fishing boats, one guy even came over in a canoe. Regular people, citizens, came over and picked up the soldiers from the beach and took them back. It's an incredible story. It is part of the fabric of British life. It's uh, uh, folklore, except that it's true. And Christopher Nolan has done a masterful job of bringing it to the screen. Go see this movie, as I said earlier, as large and as loud as you can. This is an immersive experience. This is a film that you want to be... You want it to, to wash over you. 
You want to be in the theater and feel like you're sitting in the cockpit of a Spitfire high above the English Channel. Astounding stuff. This is my conversation with Christopher Nolan. How's the day going for you? Must be uh, a long one, but I hope uh, I hope at least an interesting one for you. Yeah, it's been very interesting, uh, but I will confess this is towards the end of three days, and uh, I'm, if I fall asleep on the phone, just shout. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been fun though. Actually, it's it's always fun to talk about the film once you got it out there. You've been living with it in private for so long. And how long have you been living with this? Because I know that you made a, a trip across the channel. Yeah. In the early 90s, I know that the Dunkirk spirit is something that, you know, you see, you have felt for some time. But how long has the film been, been reverberating around in your head? I mean, I don't even remember the first time I was told about the events at Dunkirk. Like, like most British people, I've just grown up with this story. Um, so I think that trip about 20 years ago was what first interested me in the reality or finding out the reality behind the, the myth or the fairy tale, if you like, the sort of simple version of it that you're told as a kid. Because, you know, we made this crossing and it was arduous and, and dangerous. It felt very, very difficult. And that was without anybody dropping bombs on us. We weren't heading into a war zone. So your, your admiration and respect for the real people who, who did that uh, in 1940 uh, can't help but be cemented. And, and so it's just something that, well, I mean, as a storyteller, you, you're looking for gaps in the cultural record. You're, you're looking for, okay, what hasn't been done in modern films? And, and the fact that this amazing story hasn't been done in modern films, to me, that for me as a filmmaker, that's just a huge opportunity. So I, I just grabbed it with both hands. Do you think that one of the reasons that it hasn't been done in modern cinema, the last time I think was probably in the 50s, I think, the yeah. Attenborough film. Um, do you think that part of it is that it's not entirely a victory story? There's, <laughs> there, there's, no, there, there's no victory dance at the end. I think that's part of it. And, and, you know, there is something of a victory within the defeat, mm -hmm. uh, which is very unique and which is why the story, I think, is so resonant. I think really... If you to really reduce it to its essentials, this is a vast story that has to be told with an American budget, but it's a British story. And that's a difficult equation to reconcile. And I found myself in a position where I could get that done, and so I have. And so does that mean that this is a passion project for you? This is sort of... One of those things. I think Everybody was all set. Like I didn't give a shit about the last. Well, no, no. <laughs> but but I, I think that there there is that saying I, uh, that I've heard often, and you can tell me if if this doesn't ring true to you at all. Uh, but there's one for me, one for them. Kind not of for me. No, I've never. I've heard that about other filmmakers. I've talked to other filmmakers who do operate that way. It's never been that for me. It really hasn't. And uh, you know, I I I find filmmaking really difficult. You know, I mean, yes, it's not coal mining, okay, but, it, but I find it tough. I find it physically tough. It's hard on your family life. It's hard on everything. It's, it's all-consuming, and I love it, and I love movies, and so I don't ever want to do it for something that I don't really, really care about. I think, you know, there are filmmakers, I think, who find it easier than, than I do, and then maybe that's okay, one for me, one for them, but I, I, want, I, want, to do, I want to do the film that I would want to see as an audience member, and so... You know, really, for me, Dunkirk 
my pitch to the studio and my honest and heartfelt belief, and God knows I could be wrong, I'm about to find out, but what I really believe is that it's a universal story with massive spectacle and excitement. And so what I felt was, and my pitch to them, is if I can make a sufficiently intense and suspenseful telling of this story, I think I can wrap up an international audience in what previously has been seen as an exclusively British story, because I think the story is universal. Well, for me, I saw it a couple of days ago in advance of this interview, mm. and I saw it on IMAX. It is astounding. It, it, from the opening shot of the five young men uh, walking through the streets with the propaganda uh, pamphlets floating down around them mm. to the gunshots that follow and, and all, uh, it, I, it was immersive. I kept thinking to myself, I feel like I'm there in some way. I feel like I'm in the Spitfire, uh, the, the, the cockpit of the Spitfire. And then I read a quote from you where you say uh, that part of the pitch was, it'll be like virtual reality without the headset. And I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's about, I, I call it an intimate epic. Uh, what it's about to me is a cinema of experience. It's about what films are best about doing, particularly right now when there are so many other options for entertainment for people, whatever. What movies do best is they create this amazing tension between sitting there in a theater, in a crowded theater, hopefully crowded theater, mm -hmm. uh, and you have an intensely subjective response to the material on screen. You, you have a very private response. And then you have this empathy, this, this magical empathetic response with the rest of the audience. And that's what movies do. That's the magic of movies. And so what I really wanted to do was avail myself of that empathetic response that an audience can have to what they're seeing on screen. So, you know, you're looking at these guys on screen and they're not telling you who they are or where they've come from or why you should care about them. You care about them because you believe in the physicality of the situation they're in. You see the task before them and you don't want them to fail because you wouldn't want to fail if you were in their shoes. So everything we could do technically to make the audience feel like they're actually there on that beach or they're actually up in that Spitfire in that cockpit of that Spitfire, or on the deck of that boat coming over and rough seas of the channel. You know, everything we could do to enhance that helps the narrative drive of the story, helps the empathetic uh, response from the audience. Well, the sound design alone, you know, as the Spitfires fly above you, you can feel your chest rumbling. And, and it's just one more way that I felt that I was being pulled into the movie. Mm. And it works so well. Oh, thank you. Do you remember, if you think back to uh, your early life going to movies, is there a movie that you can think back to that was what you just described for you? Well, the movies, there's a handful of movies I always point to when I'm asked about my early experiences in the cinema. And the, the, the first one I always have to talk about is George Lucas's first Star Wars. I saw that when I was seven years old. And... It still stands today in, in my mind as a demonstration of the absolute potential of, of cinema to create an immersive experience, take you away to worlds that you never even imagined. Um, that screening was followed pretty rapidly about a year later by the re-release they did of Kubrick's 2001. And watching that as a, you know, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old actually, uh, you didn't understand it. I don't understand it anymore today, but the experience of it was pure cinema. 
and you felt this opening up of the screen, this larger-than-life quality of the screen. It's just able to, you're able to just pass through that portal into other worlds. Uh, and, and I think those are experiences, uh, you know, seeing Lawrence of Arabia when it was re-released in the 80s, I went with my dad to see it, and uh, just the sheer scale of the world that's created there, uh, taking you places that you, that you would never have the opportunity to go. That's the magic of movies, and, and everything I do is is really aimed at trying to get back to that for myself uh, and give that experience to, to some youngster who's, who's going to movies for the first time now. Well, that's why I think it's so important to see movies in a movie theater. I think it's primal. I think it's hardwired into our DNA that we are to enjoy stories uh, in a crowd with people. Yeah. You hear them laugh. You hear them cry. You hear them react somehow. Sitting in the dark, watching a story is a is a wonderful communal yeah. experience. And I can't imagine watching Dunkirk on my television. No, I mean, it's made for the big screen. And a lot of that is not just about spectacle. It's about empathy. Mm -hmm. And when you say... We hear people laugh, we hear people cry. It's actually much more subtle than that even. Yes, that's there, absolutely, and everybody wants to watch a comedy with a, a bunch of people who are laughing. But there's also this very interesting process of empathy that I've analyzed over the years as a filmmaker. You know, when I show my film to somebody, I don't have to look at them or hear them to know how they're watching the film. I'll listen to their notes at the end of the screening and I will have felt those things as I watched it. And I've puzzled over this for years, and it's a, it's a, it's a borderline mystical phenomenon of, of empathetic response. But what it really boils down to is, when you're watching a film with a crowd, part of your brain is also watching it the way you think the person next to you is watching it, and the way you think the person three rows in front of you is watching it. You are tapping into a collective collective consciousness, really, and watching the film. That's, that's the nature of the empathetic response, and it's the tension between that subjective experience and then what you imagine other people to be thinking and feeling which is confirmed by the odd gasp or the odd laugh you know what have you the audience we, we educate each other as audience members um, and that to me is why movies will always be uh, you know uh, an incredibly dominant and important form of entertainment do you think that dunkirk coming along when it has or when it does in a couple of weeks do you think there's a timely message for today wrapped up in this 77-year-old story? It's a story about coming together, about showing community, and, and it seems to me that when I look at the news that communities are falling apart, that people aren't coming together, quite the opposite. And this movie, in it's not a political movie, I don't think, but no. it is a, a movie that I think has a message if, if you're open to it. I think it does, and I, I wouldn't say that I was particularly dogmatic in making it, but the, the resonance of the Dunkirk story to me has always been about a sense of communal heroism. And when I think about it now that I'm finished, I look around me and I realize that we live in a time that bizarrely fetishizes individuality to the extent where we don't even require ourselves to watch the same news as other people. We just watch the news we want to watch, and we hear the news we want to hear. Um, but that's how fragmented our society has become. And this elevation of the individual has come at the expense of the community and of the idea of community and what community can achieve. And so whether people are talking about the death of trade unions or, you know, getting rid of government, small, wanting small government, wanting less government or whatever, this kind of 
demonizing really of what society has done as a community uh, there needs to be a balance and I think that Dunkirk as a story is a wonderful reminder of the power of community the power of what we can do not just as individuals but together there must have been moments while you were making the film because part of it was shot on the actual beach and and I'm told that some of the the small pleasure cruisers and things that were coming in at the near the end of the film were actually present on the day yeah, um, in, in 1940 so there must have been a a, a sense of touching history or, or something that, oh, yeah. that would that would add something to you whether it's physical or tangible or not um, that that made you feel inspired made you feel different than you might have if you were shooting on another location I mean, definitely. It's it's a tough question to answer because I think the your question contains the answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was yeah. well, it was absolutely a day you know where I found myself standing on the beach watching this recreation of these events uh, with the real little ships, you know, coming in as they would have in 1940 in the real location on the 76th anniversary of the real evacuation, and that was a an important moment for me, an important moment to sort of step back and uh, acknowledge um, what a unique experience we were having. Um, the balance of entertainment and history is something I think that is probably very important. As a filmmaker, you need to keep the audience involved and entertained, but you also want to make sure that you get the story right. How did you find that balance? For me, I found that balance by researching the history in detail, particularly first-hand accounts, gathering together a real body of knowledge of, of what the history was made of in terms of individual experiences. And then what I decided to do was create fictional characters to guide me through the geography and the events of uh, the evacuation. And that freed me up to make the necessary consolidations and simplifications and so forth without treading on somebody's actual personal history or putting words in the mouths of people who had no say in it. Uh, but in that way, I felt able to illustrate for an audience unfamiliar with the detail of this event uh, what had really happened or what it might have felt like to be there. Interesting. I think we're out of time here. But interesting, in the first, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, I wasn't looking at my watch when I was watching the film. There's not that much dialogue, and there's really not all that much dialogue all the mm -hmm. way through the film. So when you talk about putting words in people's mouths, it, it's, it's, it, it, I, I was so struck later as I was thinking about the film that this really was a movie that uh, showed me but didn't tell me things. And that's, I think, what I'm why I found it so moving and, and so immersive uh, because I was it, it was pure cinema for me it was show me don't tell me well I, I love the silent films I love the great silence of the, of the past and uh, I think that is the closest you get to pure cinema we now are able to use all kinds of sound and music all kinds of things to, to enlarge what the idea of cinema can be but I think that I wanted to and I was very refreshed by being able to strip away a lot of the artifice, a lot of the theatrics um, that we all use as filmmakers uh, in the sound era. Um, and I think the reason was Dunkirk is such a simple story. It doesn't need to be over-explained. It doesn't need an excess. 
of, of dialogue. And, and I like the idea of using the language of suspense. And suspense is the most visually based and purely cinematic of the movie genre. Uh, and for that reason, I felt we could do with fewer words than did we have. That's Christopher Nolan on his film Dunkirk. You know, I get the idea that he's probably the smartest guy in the room, no matter what room he's in. What do you think? The film is astounding. Go see it. Go see it. Third time in the podcast. Go see it as large and as loud as you can. IMAX or 70 mil, it will blow you away. You want to see Dunkirk. That's it for this week. Happy belated birthday to Ken Russell. My thanks to William Friedkin for talking about naked nuns with me and to Christopher Nolan. Most of all, though, my thanks goes to you. Thanks for coming back every week. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And, you know, who knows? It might just be one of your favorite people. So make sure you come back and check in with us. You might be surprised at who you bump into. 